Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with M.R. Carey, author of The Book of Coley, published by Hatchet Book Group. It was on sale April 14th, 2020. Uh, thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for having me on the show. So first, um, as with any writer, I'm sure you have a ton of ideas that are bubbling around in your head. How did this, the idea for this particular book rise above the rest and, and get written? Um, it started in much the same way as Girl With All The Gifts started, which is to say I did a short story. Um, and the short story was off to one side mm-hmm. of what became the novel. But uh, it, it, it gave me a chance to play with the voice. So you could say that Coley's voice was the thing that came first. Mm-hmm. Although um, in, in the short story, the corresponding character is called Terry. Um, and he it, that, that character is a little bit like um, an amalgam of Coley and Cup mm-hmm. in the novel. But I got, um, I got hung up on the voice and I sort of built the character around the voice and then I built the world around the character. It was... Uh, a strange but but uh, a very sort of rewarding process. Mm-hmm. Now, do you usually, when you write short, st- I, I don't know how, how often you write short stories, um, but do they, do you write them with the idea, can this become a novel, or is it is it usually segregated, and this one kind of rose up and, dec- you know, you felt like this could be a novel-length story? I, I, I never go in sort of... Um assuming that I'm, I'm sort of trialing something for a novel. But um, I, th- I think what I, one of the things I love about the short story form is that it allows you to play games with voice and tone and style and approach um, and to do things that you wouldn't normally do in a longer piece because if it doesn't work out, there's much less at stake. Mm-hmm. So it can be a kind of, um, a kind of laboratory mm-hmm. um, for, for, for different ways into a story. And sometimes you just find yourself in a like in a really fertile space and you think there's more to this Mm -hmm. tell me about the book then um you know protagonist setting that sort of thing however many details you'd like to go into sure um so this is a i guess it's a post-apocalyptic story it takes place several centuries after the the collapse of our global civilization um it's long enough that they don't really know exactly what happened they have stories about what happened um uh, they, they, they talk about the times before. Uh, they talk about the unfinished war, which was clearly a resource war. You know, there was a time when um, climate breakdown had begun to take hold. Uh, resources became scarce. Uh, there, were, there were wars fought for those diminishing resources. There were also scientific interventions uh, to try to reverse what was happening to the world's climate and to the world's ecosystems. And those interventions, however, however well-meant, Um, caused further harm. So, for example, there was massive genetic manipulation, especially with plants, which has made some of the plants feral and mobile. Um, They they seeded the clouds with silver, and they seeded the sea with with algae, with algal blooms to try and capture carbon. And all of those things have had an impact on the world that Coley knows. But, uh, But he grows up in this very, very small corner of England and because the the environment is so hostile nobody goes very far 
you know, he's literally lived his entire life in this in this one valley, the Calder Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it's a, you know, it's a coming of age story. It's a story about how he discovers the greater world and his place in that world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also a story about the relationship between humanity and the other things that are alive. If that doesn't sound too grandiose. <laughs> so I guess they live at this point, the characters live in a sort of medieval type of setting, very low tech um, kind of situation. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, with, with, the, with the one exception that they have some pieces of legacy technology. There are a few things that have survived mm-hmm. from our time. And they've survived because they were self-repairing. They have the ability to, to keep themselves in, in, a, in, a, in a functional condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't work for everybody. They recognize some users and not others. So uh, in the village where Coley lives, Mythenrood, uh, and in most of the other villages around about, mm-hmm. the few pieces of legacy tech are, are hoarded and treasured. Mm-hmm. And the people who can use them have a kind of elite status within that society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Coley's village, when you reach the age of 15, you have your testing. You're allowed to pick up one of the one of the pieces of ancient tech, and if it wakes in your hand and works for you, then you become a rampart. You become a member of this elite group that uh, protects the village against external threats, mm-hmm. and the the world is your oyster, or rather, this tiny little piece the piece of the world is your oyster. Mm-hmm. So, is the book more about um, the characters in this setting? Or does it uh, address so, sort of social issues as far as the use of technology or the the abuse of technology? I, th- I think it's fair to say that those themes are, are definitely present in the story. The, the focus is is on Coley, uh, on his journey, and on the the encounters that he uh, he makes along the way. But I think with, with any kind of writing, and I think this is true for for every writer. Your, your, your ideas and your attitudes and the way you see the world, it, it's, it's, always, it's always present in a, in a sort of latent way in anything, um, whatever the ostensible subject is. So, yeah, there's, a, there's a, lot of, a lot of stuff here about our stewardship of the environment. There's a lot of stuff about um, power structures in society uh, and how, um, how they distort uh, human relationships. There's a lot of my other um, sort of familiar... Uh, bugbears and obsessions. There's a lot of stuff about family, about the way families uh, kind of mediate the identity of mm-hmm. individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, so all, all, all of those things are in there, but in, in a kind of light touch way. Mm-hmm. So though it's a fantasy uh, book, um, or, or I guess you could, could you call it science fiction in a sense? Or uh, yeah, I guess you could. Um, um it's, sure. it's science fiction insofar as the, the explanation for everything that's happening is ultimately a scientific one, although um, yeah, I'm stretching the definition of that in some cases. Mm-hmm. Some of the technology that we see is not technology of our time. It's technology that you can you have to hypothesize that, that these things came in at a certain point between now and the collapse of global civilization. Mm-hmm. So it seems that the dangers that exist to the characters, to the protagonist may seem fantastic in a sense, but they I get the sense they're based on science gone wild or mad or whatever word you'd like to use. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're seeing a world that has been the victim of multiple 
cataclysms, multiple overlapping disasters. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes a long time before you unravel all the things that happen. I mean, to a certain extent, that's kind of not where the main focus of the story is. Mm -hmm. But Colley does go on um, a, a journey of discovery. He does uncover the past um, in making his decisions about his own future. And he gets to encounter some of the uh, some of the surviving artifacts of the uh, of the past, not just the uh, the little pieces of legacy tech in his home village, but much bigger structures that have survived from our time, um, which become more and more central to the story as it goes on. Mm -hmm. Did you do? Did you have to do any research um, as you wrote this? A little bit, not, not not a huge amount. I did some geographical research. I wanted the um, the geography of the Calder Valley uh, and the geography of, of Coley's uh, journey to make make sense. Mm -hmm. um, but that wasn't a huge a huge uh, deal. Uh, and I did some research into, for example, one of the characters, Ursula, uh, who we meet in the first book, has um, a, a robot, a tame robot that. that uh, goes follows along behind her, and it's a it's a military robot. It, she calls it the Drudge. Mm. It's a, it's a, it's like a horse with no head. Mm. It's a sort of big, bulky metal body and four spindly metal legs, uh, and a little gun mounted um, amidships, as it were. Uh, and that's mm. based on existing technology. You know, those those robots are are being trialed now by the U.S. Army, and we've seen we've seen some quite scary footage <laughs> of what the proto what the prototypes look like and. What they can do. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I looked. I looked at that footage, and I looked at the um, the sort of uh, what we know about the specification of those particular machines. Um, but an awful lot of it is just invented um, uh, by you know, by whole cloth, as it were. Mm -hmm. I guess the other, the other thing I looked at are the proposed um, scientific hail marys. You know, the the, uh, the things that are being discussed as possible last ditch interventions if the climate really starts to. Um, to fold up and fall apart. I'm speaking with M.R. Carey, author of The Book of Coley. You can find more information about his work on Twitter at MichaelCarey191. Please rate this podcast on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing my listenership. Please sign up for my newsletter located at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Please post your comments about this podcast or the episode on Facebook at Chris Alvarez FCN or on YouTube at Chris Alvarez. You can contact me directly on Twitter at Chris Alvarez FCN or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. If you like military history, please listen to my podcast, Military History Inside Out, located at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. I appreciate any support you can give me. Now back to the podcast. Were there, um, do you have other works that you've done that fall in the same vein as this novel? Like, are there, you know, what other stuff have you done that maybe follows this same scene or a post-apocalyptic that maybe this is built on? Well, the um, the most most obvious example would be The Girl with All the Gifts, um, and then uh, it, its companion novel, The Boy on the Bridge, where, um, uh, again, you've got a, a society that has fallen apart, in this case because of a, a plague. Mm -hmm. um, those, those, are, those are zombie novels, but they're, 
plague zombie novels. That is to say, there's nothing supernatural going on. There's um, there's a, a pathogen, in this case, a, a fungus, a mind controlling fungus, which turns people into um, it shuts down your your higher brain functions and basically just turns you into a a feral, um, uh, hungry completely out of control uh so I, I wrote two two books two novels set in that world and i also wrote the screenplay for the movie based mm-hmm. on the first of those books girl with all the gifts mm-hmm. um apart from that i haven't i haven't really done much in post-apocalyptic territory mm-hmm. um but you know it has to be said my, my, my comfort zone is um speculative fiction it's the whole sort of the whole broad spectrum that, that goes from horror through dark fantasy into into sci-fi and even into magic realism. What I can't do ever, it seems, is work in a totally realistic vein. Hmm. Um, it, it feels like I'm painting in black and white rather than in color when I do that. Hmm. Um, so what uh, what books, music, TV, and maybe other media inspire you and the work you do? Oh, that would be a huge, huge list there. The, the, the stuff that's, uh, that I'm completely addicted to at the moment um, is uh, Hilary Mantel's Cromwell trilogy, hmm. Will Fall, Bring Up the Bodies, and The Mirror and the Light. I, I'm just in, in awe of those books. You can reread them endlessly, and they just keep on giving. Um, her style is, it's like it's like liquid honey. It, 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 you, you just devour it. Hmm. Um, I grew up reading a lot of genre fictions. Uh, I guess the first author who sort of took me down that road was Enid Blyton with her fantasy stories about the magic wishing chair and the uh, the faraway tree, uh, which was a tree that, uh, if you climbed it, took you into different uh, magical lands. Hmm. And then as I grew older, um, I discovered Michael Moorcock, Roger Zelazny, Ursula Le Guin, uh, Vonda McIntyre, Mervyn Peake. Uh, the Gorman Guest trilogy was a huge, um, a huge influence on me. Um, and at the same time, I was reading lots and lots of comics. So I, I grew up reading the Marvel comics. Um, the first American comic I ever read was a Fantastic Four annual that my older brother gave me, and that started a kind of lifelong love affair mm-hmm. uh, with the Marvel uh, superhero universe and um, with the DC one. Um, more recently, uh, I've read a lot of um, Tony Millionaire's Sock Monkey and Uncle Gabby comics. Um, I love the Hernandez Brothers stuff, Palomar and um, Love and Rockets uh, mechanics and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, music, I listen to folk and the sort of folkier end of, uh, of rock, hmm. uh, which is a, it's, 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 it's a fairly narrow niche, but there's a lot of richness there. Okay. So having worked in both comic books and prose, you know, comic books are very visual medium. Um, yeah. When you write, do you, do you try, do you see your, do you see your, um, your, the progression of your novel in comic book form and you write down what you're seeing or how, how do you translate or, or um, differentiate between the two and how you work? Ooh, uh, again, that's a huge question. Um, I, I, I actually started out writing prose. I came to comics um, initially um, right through writing comics journalism. And at the same time, I was trying to write novels. And the reason why none of my novels ever got anywhere was because they were just completely lacking in structure. This is when I was in my, uh, my teens and my 20s. Um, I would write these massive, shapeless bags of story. 
um, just disastrously um, lacking in any kind of progression. My method of working was write chapter one, make a cup of tea, come back, write chapter two. I didn't plan. I didn't have any kind of a, a sense of where I was going. Um, and then at a certain point, I started writing comics. And the thing about comics is that you know, if you're writing um, for an American publisher in a periodical format, you have a very, very fixed page count, which might be 20 or 22 pages. Um, you can't really go either beyond, beyond that or below it. So you have to you have to obsess about structure. You have to cost out each scene in terms of pages, and you have to make sure that you don't run out of pages before you run out of story. Coming back from that into writing prose, I was able to use the freedoms of prose much more um, much more intelligently uh, and create structures of my own and create limits uh, of my own. Uh, so comics were a fantastic proving ground for me. Um, I, I guess. Comics are a very, very collaborative medium. I mean, typically, you've got um, you've got the writer, you've got a penciler, you've got an inker or finisher, a colorist, a letterer. There's a whole team of people who are putting that world together. And yes, you're right. In a in a in a novel, you're doing all of those things um, by yourself. But there's something glorious about that. I mean, you're actually you're in a novel. You're trying to create a sort of um, a space that is defined by all five senses. You try to invoke not just the visuals, but the sounds and the smells and the tastes and the textures and so on. Um, and I, I think if, you, if you're doing that job well, you create a world that is just as immersive um, as a comic book world or a movie world, mm-hmm. um, but, it act, it, but it acts on the, um, on the reader's brain in a different way, which is why I think you know, when, when, when you see the adaptation of a book or a comic that you've really loved, and you see it being uh, being realised in um, in TV or in a movie form, often you have the kind of the dislocation, the, the sort of dissociative sense of that's not what they look like, hmm. or that's not that that's not what that looks like, uh, and you can't you can't suspend your disbelief because you've already you've already sort of created the world in your head. Mm-hmm. How did you um, when you transitioned from? being an unstructured writer to a structured one how, how did you make that happen um i think it happened to me <laughs> um, i was i was very lucky um with my collaborators i always have been um the first two editors that i worked for at dc um were uh elisa quitney and shelly bond or shelly roberg as she was in those days uh, and they are both um they, they, they're that magic fusion of um detail and big picture they don't let you. They don't let you get away with anything. Mm-hmm. Um, Shelley, in particular, would actually insist on uh, a very, very full scene breakdown for each issue, and she would um, she would pick a fight with me about things. You know, she'd say that that scene doesn't need to be two pages. You can get that done in one and have a splash page over there. And and Elisa had studied um, narrative theory at college, and so she gave me a, a ton of stuff about. Um, the shapes of stories, the, the models and templates of stories that just opened my eyes to the potential of the medium in ways that, uh, that I'd never thought about before. So it was a time of, it was a time of discovery, but I, I would, I'd be lying if I, if I said that I was the prime mover. I was, uh, I was getting a lot of input from really gifted people who had worked in the medium far longer than, than I had mm-hmm. uh, and knew a lot more about it. Were you resistant to change, or did you uh, did you go along with it happily? No, I I, I devoured it. I think I, I think I was ready for it. I was mm-hmm. I was ready to sort of uh, 
to pick pick up this this ball and run with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it and it was really exciting. I mean, this is when I was writing um, Lucifer and Hellblazer, and it felt like, and then sort of a little bit further down the line when I started to go back into novels again with the the Felix Castor series, and it really felt like um, like it was a, a a, a, cr- a creative explosion, a kind of a kind of personal renaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, I was le- learning my craft, and I was hugely, hugely re- relishing it. Mm-hmm. So, to step back to the book of Coley, would you say it has a, a soundtrack of some sort, or does it have a specific aesthetic to it that you could describe? Um. <laughs> There is a soundtrack that appears in the story because one of one of the one of the characters in the story is um, Manono Aware, who is a, a, a dead Japanese pop star, who Coley meets in the form of um, the artificial intelligence that hosts and curates the content on a music player, mm-hmm. uh, and she introduces him to uh, the music of the past, the music of our time. Um, Coley's tastes are not the same as my tastes. He he uh, <laughs> listens to a lot of heavy metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Metallica in there and Pantera, um, stuff like that, which, uh, to be honest, I do not listen to for pleasure very much. Um, when when I was writing it, the songs that went around in my head most often were from the Talking Heads album Naked. There's a there's a lot of a lot of songs on on that album that are about um, the breakdown of the world and the new, new world rising up and and kind of reflecting on whether whether we, uh, whether whether people of our time, have the uh, have the wherewithal to make that transition, whether we would actually be able to survive um, in a world that was radically different from this one. Hmm. So currently, um, as you write your novels, is there anything you do out of the ordinary to complete your work? Um, out of the ordinary, in what kind of way, Chris? Um, maybe how you do how you write your drafts. You know, everyone says that. Um, you know, you're either what is it, a pants writer or a, or a. Now I'm forgetting the other term. You know, writing from the seat of your pants or a, or, or outlining. Got you. So so it's like kind of like the architect versus the gardener kind of thing. Whether you whether you plan and plot or um, or let things happen organically. Right. Um, I, I I I kind of do a little bit of both. Mm. Um, I I I still do what I used to do when I wrote comics, which is I still do very detailed um, outlines for each for each chapter in a story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always know where the major plot points are going to come. But then I always find when I start writing that I have better ideas. So the plan, it was what I was saying about no plan survives contact with the enemy. <laughs> um, in this case, the enemy is the keyboard, I guess. Um, as soon as you start writing, your mind starts to sort of like um, hover over the fictional space. You start to engage more with things that were just abstract ideas. Mm-hmm. You start to live inside characters who you just had just sketched out. Um, and things inevitably go in different directions. So the plan is there. And the plan is, after a while, the plan is just a safety net. You can go back to the plan if you want to. But typically you're you're sailing away with the plan sort of off to one side of you um and then the the, the book does its own thing so there, there were a lot of things um in coley that i knew had to happen and particularly the ending um it, I, knew, I knew i was steering towards a particular crisis and a particular resolution but there were many um many other things that got woven in 
just because you know once you're once you're writing it your mind your mind comes up with a bunch of stuff that hadn't occurred to you at the planning stage mm -hmm. so it's a combination of um punctilious plotting and seat of the pants invention has your um and we touched on this a bit already but has your approach to writing changed over time um i think my voice has changed i think mm -hmm. I've, I've always i've always tended to write in the same way i i, I write I'm not going to say nine to five because it often goes on much longer than than that. But yeah, you know, I get out of bed in the morning and I sit down at the keyboard and I start to write. Um, but I think what has changed is my voice. I think there was a time when I, when I was writing the Casa novels and the couple of novels that that, that followed them, I, I, I discovered a formula and I stuck to that formula, both in terms of the way the stories functioned and in terms of the, the storytelling voice and tone. And then what happened was um, I wrote two books. I co-wrote two books with my wife, Linda, uh, and our daughter, Louise, uh, The House of War and Witness and The City of Silk and Steel. Mm. And so for about three years, best part of three years, I was co-writing with two women who had very strong voices of their own. Mm -hmm. and approaches approaches to story that were not the same as mine um and we had to we had to compromise we had to find um you know working solutions that, that, that we were all comfortable with we had to sort of converge on a voice that worked for all of us mm -hmm. um and i came out of that in a different place i came out sensitized to stuff that i used to do without thinking about it very much um and the immediate consequence of that was go with all the gifts um, where the protagonist is a 12-year-old girl. Um, and I use present tense and very, very short declarative sentences and quite simplified vocabulary to try to get across um, the, the, the immediacy of experience to a child. You know, the way mm -hmm. when, when you're that age, any tiny thing can fill your whole um, landscape to bursting. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to try and sort of get that across. Um and I've not looked back since then, really. I think I'm much more willing to mess around now, to experiment with something, um, not in the expectation that it will work, but out of curiosity as to where it will take me. Mm -hmm. Have you done other, have you done non-writing work that's influenced how or what you wrote? Um, I guess that, I guess we would go, you've been writing for a while, so any other, you, you wouldn't have been doing any other work, but maybe there's something out there that, uh, that did influence you? Well, I, I worked as a teacher for 15 years hmm. um, be, be, before I, I, I was going to say before I started writing, but actually I was writing um, as a hobby mm -hmm. throughout that time. Um, and I, I gave up teaching in 1999, 2000, that academic year, mm -hmm. um, because I, I got to the point where uh, I was turning down um, writing gigs in order to in order to teach, and I thought, but actually, writing is what I, is what I love. I think um, teaching 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 was a discipline, and teaching one of the things about uh, the job is that you meet two hundred new people every year, hmm. and I did it for fifteen years. So I think it gives you an enormous resource bank of human nature. Hmm. You 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 learn a lot about people and how they tick. I mean, it, it's not unique in that respect. There are many jobs um, that, 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 uh, that are equally valuable. But I think, um, I think that was one of the things I got from teaching. I think also um, teaching has left me with a sort of um, a fascination for 
the way social role interacts with personality because you know what you do becomes who you are to a certain extent mm-hmm. uh, it becomes grafted onto you um when you teach when you go into a classroom you you have a position of, of authority and a position of um you know a position of power over a group of impressionable young people mm-hmm. and it it's um it's something that is easier to pick up than to put down. I used to find myself, um, if I was out with friends in the evening and then we were having a conversation, I'd do the thing that teachers do in a classroom. I'd, uh, I'd point to somebody to say, yes, it's your turn to talk. <laughs> um, and, and I realized at that point, you, know, you, 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 you kind of, all, all through your life, you're taking on grafts. You know, there, there is your, your, um, your core personality, but your core personality is always inflected by the things that you do, by the rituals of your life. Um, you know the Stanford Prison Experiment, where um, students were asked to be either prisoners or prison guards, and then they had to call it off because the prison guards would were just like getting into it too much and and uh, doing some some frankly sadistic things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like that, right? Yeah, it's more subtle for most of us, but I think it's there, um, and I think I think that plays through in a lot of my stories as well. People enacting roles or re- rebelling against the roles that are assigned to them. Mm-hmm. Did you find it when you were a teacher, were there times when, when you thought to yourself, you wanted to do one thing, but you said, I have to, I have to be the teacher. And so I have to behave in this other way in order to, to do the right thing. You, you definitely find yourself, I mean, you, 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 you're, you're within an institution. You're a, you're, you're a, you know, Pink Floyd said, uh, another brick in the wall, mm-hmm. which I think is the, uh, the, the, the negative way of saying that, but you're part of an institution and all institutions, um, whatever their ostensible purposes, they also exist to further themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are, you know, structures within it, within any institution, whether it's a school or an office, uh, or, or whatever. That just exists because because they reinforce the power structures within that within that organization, mm-hmm. um, and you definitely find find that seeping into you. You find yourself reacting um, with with institutional uh, mind rather than your uh, your your own personal mind. I can pride myself on one thing: I was a terrible manager. I mean, I, I did become I did become a head of department mm-hmm. at uh, one of the colleges I worked in, and I wasn't good at the job. And one of the reasons why I wasn't good at it was because I continued to regard management as the enemy, huh. <laughs> even when, even when I was a manager. Um, <laughs> my my headmaster asked me if I had a trouble with all authority or only with his. <laughs> um, and at the time, I thought, no, it's just you. But I, th- I think he he was probably onto something. Um, I, I, I'm definitely uh, with Groucho Marx in that I would never want to be in any club that would have me as a member. <laughs> I'm speaking with M.R. Carey, author of The Book of Coley. You can find more information about his work on Twitter at MichaelCarey191. Please rate this podcast on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. These ratings go a long way in increasing my listenership. Please sign up for my newsletter located at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Please post your comments about this podcast or the episode on Facebook at Chris Alvarez FCN or on YouTube at Chris Alvarez. You can contact me directly on Twitter at Chris Alvarez FCN or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. If you like military history, please listen to my podcast Military History Inside Out located at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, 
please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. I appreciate any support you can give me. Now back to the podcast. You know, it's interesting you said that uh, family and is a theme that you explore in your, your work. Um, I would imagine as a teacher, you see you might see groups of students, you see all kinds of power structures there, including students uh, forming into their little sort of uh, semi-family groups in a sense, maybe not by blood, by but by other things. So that seems like a, you know, just that experience, you could you could really see power structures and how they Yeah, work. very much so. Yeah, and, and also you see, you see families that support their kids and you see families that sabotage their kids without ever knowing that they're doing it, you know, that they, they, they just won't let them be the person they want to be or do the things they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you, you see you see it when it works and you see it when it's turned toxic and, and dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Were there parts of the book uh, you had to take out that the editors – are you the type that writes a lot and then cuts back or, or how, is, how is that with this book? That's a good question, and I'm not sure I can answer it. I'm trying to think what was the what was the what was the editing process like. I think it was fairly light this time. I think the the final draft is very close to um, to the first draft. There were definitely some sequences that I wrote and took out myself, not because my editors didn't like them, but because um, they they weren't conducive to the sort of forward motion of the story. There, there was a, there was a bunch of stuff about um, the other villagers in the Calder Valley. And I realized at a certain point, yes, but um, what I'm trying to emphasize that the isolation, the more I sort of um, show these other places at work, uh, the more that sense of isolation is uh, is diluted. So I, cu- I cut back on that quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Do you have a person or people reading as you go along to to identify these things or that was just stuff as you kept doing it, you, you figured that out? Um, I, this time I use my family a lot as beta test readers, mm. um, much more so than with previous novels. Um, I'm not sure quite why that was, but they, 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 they stepped into the breach and, um, I can, I can remember having conversations both with Lynn and with, uh, with our kids about, um, about certain sequences and also about, um, the way, the way the world is revealed, um, and whether the reveals have been timed uh, effectively or not um as i say it, it opens up in, it opens up like a sort of set of chinese boxes hmm. and it gets better as it goes uh, so I, I i had a lot of um a lot of support and help from my family okay so now a bit of a whimsical question when you were young was there any uh power technology or fictional setting that you wanted or yearned for <laughs> um power technology or fictional setting um I fantasize myself into a lot of fictional settings, yeah, all the time. Um, right back to when I was a little kid, uh, the, the, the wishing chair in the faraway tree. Yeah, I would have given um, you know, a major organ to, to have access to either of those things. Um, and I fantasize about having superpowers. Um, I, I decided quite early on that teleportation, you know, like Nightcrawler, is the superpower to have. It's, you know, it's the, 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 primo, the primo superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, technology. I would have loved to have a power ring, like Green Lantern. Uh, um, it has a lot of lot of useful functionality to it. Mm-hmm. And in terms of settings, the um, the the the, the, Earthsea, the 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 archipelago 
in Atsu with all the tiny islands, uh, each of which has its own uh, separate civilization. I used to, I used to fantasize about that a lot. Oh wow! Okay. okay. I, I did. I did live. Um, you know, I, I've uh, I've always been the kind of I was always the kind of kid who lived inside his own head a hmm. lot. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Were there any difficulties in getting the book uh, finished or published? Well, the Coley books. Um, no, I mean, I'll tell you one thing. Um, after Girl with All the Gifts, I'd, I'd written nine novels before Girl with All the Gifts. Girl with All the Gifts sold much, much better than all of the novels that had preceded it. Um, hmm. In fact, it's outsold all of those previous no novels collectively. Hmm. Um, after that, and after I started using the M.R. Carey pseudonym, um, my publishers started to look at me much more closely because the the, the works were selling uh, on a level that, that merited that degree of scrutiny. Uh -oh. <laughs> um, they became much more conscious of me as a brand, uh, yeah. and they wanted me to carry on writing books that were um, on, on brand. You know, that that kind of worked in the uh, in the same way as Girl with All the Gifts. I mean, it's not like they wanted me to just carry on writing the pastiching that same formula, but they wanted me to carry on writing in that same space. Mm -hmm. So I found myself getting um, a much higher rate of rejections, paradoxically. You know, I'd suggested possible that possible outline for a story, and they'd say, yeah, but that doesn't feel like an MR carry story. That feels a lot more like the kind of thing that Mike Carey would write. <laughs> um, so um, I, 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 one, one time I was doing a, a, um, a reading in Oxford, and I bumped into Claire North. Uh, and I was bewailing uh, my lot and saying, you yeah, know, this is, this is frustrating. I want, I want to try this out or that out. And uh, I keep getting told, no, it's not on brand. And she said, well, it's your own fault. If you, if you pitch, then you're, you're, allowing, you're allowing the publishers to say yes or no. What you do is you write the book uh, and you say, <laughs> would you like to publish this? Um, so with Coley, when, I, when the idea for Coley came into my head, I thought, this is going to be really hard to explain but it would be really easy for people to get it if I write the book. Mm -hmm. So I wrote like 40,000 words. I wrote a big chunk um, of work in progress and gave it to my editors and said, it, it will be that. And fortunately, they said, yeah, okay, we like that. Do it as a trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it, 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 that, was a, that was a first for me, sort of like sneaking, sneaking uh, past their guard in that way. Yeah, that's pretty <clears throat> fascinating. Um, hmm, interesting. Uh, what's your, so, so you, you've been referring to the books. Is this, so the book of Coley is the first in a series, Yep. but are you saying you've written the others as well or, or you just plotted them out or? No, I've written all three. Um, hmm. I wrote them, I wrote all three books in the space of just over a year. They, they, they came out very fast. I think because I had a really strong idea of where I was going with it. Hmm. Uh, so the second one comes out in September, and the third one comes out next March or April. It's sort of bang, bang, bang. Oh, wow. Okay. So have you started on a new writing project? Anything you can talk about or want to? I'm noodling with a couple of things. I'm, I'm working with, um, I'm working with uh, two incredibly um, gifted people um, and, and great collaborators, uh, Colin McCarthy and uh, Camille Gatan, who were the director and producer on Girl with All the Gifts, um, and we're putting together um, another movie idea. Mm. So I've been working on that. Um, I'm working on a new novel, um, which is a fairly classic ghost story in some ways, 
um, but with a couple of tweaks and twiddles. Um, and I'm working with Lynn and the kids on a, on a, on a sort of shared universe anthology. We, we've come up with an idea for a very strange world. And we're all writing stories, short stories set in that world. And because there are so many of us, um, we, we reckon if we each write four or five stories, we'll have a we'll have a book. It may never get published. It might just be the sort of thing that uh, we give to to family and friends. But that's helping us to stay sane during lockdown. Mm-hmm. So with all the writing do you do, do you find that social media is a distraction or does it help um, help you with your work? Um, I don't do it very much anymore. Um, I parted company with Facebook uh, around about the time of the uh, Cambridge Analytica revelations. The only the only times I go on Facebook now really are for um, direct messaging, you know, to, to respond to messages. Uh, I still I still go on Twitter quite a lot because I find Twitter is a great source of um, of information on a lot of things. You know, the, the people in my feed will often sort of uh, provide links to. Uh, newspaper articles or academic pieces that are fascinating and that can spark um, ideas, and it, it gives me the sense of belonging to a community where mostly I work by myself in a in a tiny room. So I, I guess I've never let it become that much of a distraction. Having said that, my big distraction at the moment is online gaming. Um, there's a site called Board Game Arena, and there's another site called It'sYourTurn.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I play quite a lot of board games and quite a lot of games of chess and um, and checkers uh, online, which is my big my big tension release and my big distraction. Mm. And I don't do it too much. What what other what are your some of your couple of your favorite board games on there? Uh, Seven Wonders. Oh, okay, is is a, is a marvelous card game where you're you're putting together a civilization by collecting um, sets of cards, mm-hmm. and it plays very very quickly on board game arena you can get through an entire game in 10 minutes so that's quite addictive and there's a german game called six nimpt or sex nimpt which is um just uh, it's a set of cards numbered from one to 104 and there are rules as to how you can play them uh, in in sequences to uh, to to sabotage other people and, and force them to collect points those, those are my two favorites Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I played Seven Wonders in in physical form. I didn't. I guess it makes sense they could put it right on uh, online. Um, do you Do you ever use um, the Board Game Geek site, Chris? I'm familiar with it. I go sometimes to find information. That that there are a number of expansions for Seven Wonders, which were created um, by by fans, you know, not by Antoine Bowser himself, but Antoine Bowser has blessed them. And has said that you know they're not um, they're not stealing his intellectual property, mm-hmm. uh, and some of them are amazing. There's one called Ruins, um, and there's one called I think it might be called Sailors, which mm-hmm. allows you to interact with um, with um, players who are not your neighbours, players elsewhere in the uh, in the circle, yeah. um, and all of the all of the pieces are downloadable. You can print and play. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. That's that's cool information. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, I'm seriously into this stuff. Hey, no, I understand. I get it. Actually, if you have you, are you familiar with Gen Con? No. Oh, the uh, that's the the D and D, the big annual D and D convention. Basically, it's it's all kinds of games, but it started out as a D and D Dungeons and Dragons convention back in the day, back in the seventies. Right. Um, yeah. So is, is that in, is that in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, it's in Indianapolis. I don't know if it jumps around, but uh, usually it's around that area. 
but it's they premiere a lot of games there. Um, that's like the big one, one of the big ones. I, I, I do enjoy D and D. Both my daughter and her partner are um, are DMs, mm-hmm. so we've usually got a couple of campaigns going, or we, we did have until lockdown. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. I think Dragon Con is another big one. I think they have a lot of games uh, premiered there as well in Atlanta. Um, so yeah, that's the two big ones I can think of. Right. Um, so where, so you just mentioned some of your online or, um, Twitter, where can people find you online? Um, do you have a webpage or? I don't. I mean, I used to have a webpage that was maintained by a friend, but, um, I, w- I was shockingly, um, negligent in, in, uh, providing content for it. So that's kind of, hmm. that's kind of hit the rocks. Um, so really it's only Twitter. I, I'm, nominally on facebook as well but as i say um it's only for dms um mm-hmm. you know for responding to direct messages mm-hmm. uh so twitter uh, and uh, orbit my my uk publishers um maintain a page that just has news about um, new stuff coming out but that's all really oh on goodreads i'm on goodreads okay did you want to provide the uh, your ha- handle on either of those um, I would if I could remember it. Uh, I think on I think on Twitter I'm um, I'm just Michael Carey one nine one, which is what I am on Skype as well. Um, I'm not sure about Goodreads. I think in Goodreads you just go to my author page, which is Mr Carey. Okay, okay. I'll uh, I'll double check that and put the link in the uh, the show notes for the episode um, to make sure that cool. that's correct. Um, Thank you. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any? Um, final thoughts or words um just uh, there's one other thing i'd like to plug uh, sure. i did a comic book uh, earlier this year uh, last year and, and earlier this year for dc uh, for the hill house comics imprint which was created by joe hill mm-hmm. um my, my my comic was called the dollhouse family and it gets um a collected uh, edition in september I was really proud of how it came out. It was uh, I was collaborating with some of my favorite artists, mm-hmm. um, and I just think the story really came together well. So um, please check it out. And you said September is when it comes out. Is it? Yep. Okay. And you said D- which which publisher again? DC. DC. DC Hell House. Okay. Okay. Definitely. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for speaking with me. It's great pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com. That's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci-fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my website's chrisalvarez.com 
or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.